A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. I was starstruck because I had grown up looking at all these guys on TV. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic, Bird. They were there a year before I got there. And you know, just to play against somebody like Jojo White, and George Gervin, Dr. J, Moses. We played serious street basketball. There was much more physical game back then than it is now, obviously. That's why they had to change the rules because of how we played in the 80s. I mean, it was the guys was getting clotheslined, guys was getting hit in the back, no calls. But the game has calmed down now. It is more quicker now and more finesse, more shooting. Back then, it was much more physical. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 56. Thanks for joining me. Stay up to date with my monthly email newsletter and you will receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. Today, I welcome former NBA veteran and European champion Rick Brown to the show. After our chat for added perspective on his impact overseas, you'll hear my brief chat with good friend Kobe Sabrino. I asked Rick about his buzzer-beating shot to win the 1992 European Cup. Kobe was actually in attendance at that very game, so stay tuned to hear his memories of that too. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share two more great podcast reviews Add yours by visiting inallairness.com slash review. Show notes for this episode are at inallairness.com slash 56. Now, onto the show. My guest today starred at Mississippi State University and he played five seasons in the NBA before transitioning to Excel overseas, becoming a European champion. In 2006, he was named an SEC legend and in 2014, he was inducted to MSU's Sports Hall of Fame. Rick Brown, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was a really great moment. Could you did your research. I'm, I like that. <laughs> I'm well researched. I really enjoy learning about the guests before we chat. Uh, and I'm sure this would be a, a great chat about your career thus far. Yes. Researching about your career, I read a really good Sports Illustrated piece that said you moved to Atlanta and lived with relatives for three years to play at West Fulton High. Yes. And then as a senior, you averaged almost 29 points and 20 rebounds a game, which is incredible. Yeah. How important was that decision to move away from home, Rick? It was so 
so huge. Such a big decision, man. Um, I was I was 15 at the time. And my mother wanted me to do it, but my father didn't. My father kept telling me, son, you have two more years of high school. Why, why rush it? I was like, dad, because, you know, if I go to a bigger city, you know, I can get more recognition by more colleges. That was my thinking back then. That was 19. I'm not going to even say the number, but it was way back when. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> it was way back when. So, so I made the decision, you know, along with the blessings of my mom and my dad finally came around for me to move there because actually the man who brought me to Atlanta, I mean, he was a coach at the high school where my brother and sister went like five years before I was, I was in, I was in middle school then. Okay. So this, this man remembered me, right? I remember exactly. I was in the seventh grade. I rode my new bike. I had just got for Christmas. I rode my new bike to the high school to watch the, the high school practice. I was like in the seventh grade. And he came outside. My friend and I was outside, and the coach came outside and, and was like, oh, that's a nice bike. Congratulations, you got a new bike for Christmas. And I had no idea the guy knew me, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like maybe 5'10 in the seventh grade, maybe six feet at the time. And so two years later, three years later, he calls again and say, hey, I've been following you. Why don't you come to Georgia? We can win some championships. So I was like, okay, let's give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, great. You said you're around about five, ten, six feet mm-hmm. uh, at, at that time. Yes. When did you start to really have a growth spurt? Because I think you're about six ten, aren't you? Yes, I'm six six ten. Uh, I think I had the growth spurt, you know, right thirteen, fourteen, fifteen along those lines. Because actually, one day I, I woke up in early in the morning. You know how how kids and how people stretch in the morning. How mm-hmm. before you get out of bed, you just stretch a little bit. Yeah. And I promise you, to this day, I remember. I was stretching so much, and I felt my bones stretching. <laughs> I felt like, what am I doing here? <laughs> but no, that was that's probably didn't happen. But I just felt that way you know, when I was a kid. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I had a, I had a growth spurt then, uh, and so when I got to be, gosh, in ninth, no, tenth, eleventh grade, I got to be six, seven, six, eight. So I was I was already up there, man. Yeah. Six, seven, six, eight, and, and not even two hundred pounds. Mm. <laughs> So tall and skinny. Good stuff. Yeah. Now, um, I don't know a whole lot about your career at Mississippi State, aside from the fact that you dropped a career-high 40 points as a freshman, from what I've read. Yes. And then you averaged a very impressive 17 points and 10 rebounds a game throughout your four years with the Bulldogs. Yes. I believe you were close to signing with Michigan or Kentucky. You were heavily recruited by those schools, but chose to stay in your home state. Do you mind just talking about how that sort of transpired and, and what you remember about your college career, Rick? Yes. Um like you said, I was at that time. You could only visit seven colleges, seven universities. So when I had the final list: Michigan, Kentucky, and Mississippi State. I had to put Mississippi State on there because of a sentimental value, the sentimental purpose. But I was I was leaning towards Kentucky. I went to Michigan in April, and it was snow on the ground. So I was like, ah, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of that kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah. But uh, I was right there with Kentucky and Mississippi State. And uh, before I went to bed that night, I was going to Kentucky. But when I woke up the next morning, something was heavily on my mind to say I should go to Mississippi State because of my parents, because of my relatives. Everyone there could see me play. Back then, we did not have ESPN. We did not have cable, uh, satellite TV. So you couldn't get all the games like you get now. 
that was a, one of the bigger reasons why I chose Mississippi State uh, because of because of the family obligations, and you know I just wanted wanted to be closer to them since I had left them three years previous. And as a senior, you averaged over twenty points a game and and almost fourteen and a half rebounds, and you were one of the honorable mentions in the nineteen eighty All American teams as well. So some great things happened for you in your last season at Mississippi State. Yes, yes, it did, it did, and um, you know it was, it was a great college experience. Uh, you know when I when I was a sophomore, right before the season, I fractured my eye socket, so I had to sit out like the first three three months of the season. But after that, you know, I, I still recuperated from that and and uh, went forward with it, and it was a really really good college experience. Uh, we went we went to the NCAA one year. We got ranked as high as the 13th best team in the country uh, one year there. It was a great experience, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world, actually. I go back there occasionally. I took my, my then 12-year-old son, which is he's 25 now. Yeah. I took him to Mississippi State, and I just took my 15-year-old son back there uh, back in October when I got inducted into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, I still, still have a good relationship with the people down there, and it's, it's a really good feeling. Oh, that's good to hear. And I'd like to ask you a bit about that Hall of Fame induction a bit later on as well. So we'll come back to that. Okay. Um, now, leading up to the NBA draft in 1980, did you work out with many teams in advance of that taking place? No. No, I didn't work out with any teams. I just stayed at, at the school, stayed at Mississippi State and worked out there. I was contacted by several several teams to say they might draft me here, might draft me there. But, you know, back then they, they didn't really invite you to, to a workout, so to speak. But uh, I was definitely on their radar, like San Antonio. The Spurs uh, said it. The Boston Celtics tried, tried to do it and a couple more teams. But it wasn't like that. I'm going to draft you or you got to come to my come to our workout camp or anything like that. We would just go on, go on with it. So I just stayed at Mississippi State to work out that summer. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and you mentioned the Boston Celtics there. Now, the day before the 1980 NBA draft, Boston dealt their number one and number 13 picks to Golden State in exchange right. for four-year veteran Robert Parrish. Yes. And the rights to the Warriors' number three pick, which would be Kevin McHale, which obviously helped form Boston's Hall of Fame big three. Uh, right. The Warriors then picked Joe Barry Carroll at number one in the 80 draft and then yourself at number 13 right we're almost 35 years since that not that i want to make it seem like it's so long but it's almost 35 years since that trade was made and it's still regarded as one of the most lopsided trades in nba history but i'm really glad to have the chance to ask you yourself from your perspective how do you look back on that deal some 35 years later rick uh actually i saw red our back in the elevator once he had recruited me while we were talking briefly in an elevator. Uh, he came to, came to one of the games on the road. I was at, I was playing against Iowa State. I remember exactly. And, uh, I saw Red Auerbach getting on the elevator. I was like, wow, Mr. Auerbach. And, you know, we had a very brief conversation, very brief. I was nervous as heck. <laughs> and, you know, because I everybody know know of this man Red Auerbach, and uh, you know it's just just one of those things that happens. Uh, it it was a trade that benefited 
the Celtics more than the Warriors, obviously. But, you know, you can't go back and, and change anything or say that, you know, maybe I would have, maybe if I would have talked to him longer, read our back or showed him, showed more interest in him or not being nervous around him, maybe they would have picked me and not made the trade. But it's all in the card. So I don't have any regrets with that because everything is, is like it should be. I'm a little nervous even just chatting with yourself. So I can't imagine <laughs> how you would have been in front of Red Auerbach and then exactly. all that sort of taking place. So it's quite astonishing to fathom all the things that fell into place the way they did. Yes. Um, now, your rookie season in Golden State, they also traded that same year to get World B Free and Bernard King. Right. And both were said to come with a little bit of off-court baggage. However, Golden State improved greatly. The season before you arrived, they won just 24 games. And then in your first season there, they won 39. So what do you actually remember of that rookie campaign and, and playing with guys like World B Free, Bernard King, and, and many other personalities? Yes, uh, it, was, it was phenomenal, man. Those guys, those guys really showed me on the court, mind you, that you put in the work, you get, you get results. And back then... I mean, we, we didn't do a lot of extracurriculum activities off the court as far as how guys train today. You know, guys train year-round at, at today. Right now, back then, we didn't train year-round. We had, we had that time off, and, and we, we took the time off. But, however, great to play with a Hall of Famer like, like Bernard King. Uh, actually, I played two years against him in college. He was at Tennessee, and I was at Mississippi State. So I knew him. I knew of him then at, when he was in college. You know, they, they had, they had their issues, uh, you know, off the court, but they didn't, they didn't let that deter them on the court. Uh, they were still great players. They, they always brought their A game. And I learned a lot from, from those guys as far as how to be an NBA player on the court. How did you find the transition from playing in college to your first couple of years in the NBA? Was obviously, was there a, a huge difference between the, ability of players and I guess the overall size or how did you match up in that regard? Yeah, huge, huge difference. The speed, the strength, the accuracy of the players, the length, the height of the players. Uh, it was a big time adjustment and somebody for me, I was starstruck because I had grown up looking at all these guys on TV, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic, Bird, all these guys, I had grown up looking at them on TV. They were there a year before I got there. And, you know, just to play against somebody like Jojo White, play against somebody like a George Gervin, Dr. J, Moses, those guys. I mean, we, we played serious street basketball back then. It was more, much more physical, much more physical game back then than it is now, obviously. That's why they had to change the rules because of how we played in the 80s. It was too physical. I mean, it was the guys was getting clothesline, guys was getting hit in the back, no calls. You know, it was it was really really a rough game back then. But it, the game has calmed down now. It is more quicker now and and more finesse, more shooting. But uh, back then it was much more physical. Yeah, there were some big time battles back in the 1980s. Yes, big time <laughs> battles, man, big time. Yeah, in 1982. Your Warriors improved again and went 45 and 37, and you just missed the playoffs. Yes. Did you sense at that time that your team was on the brink of a future series of playoff runs, or how were you looking at things as you gradually improved season by season? 
Yes, we we were definitely looking at that that perspective because um, we had some teams like the Houston Rockets team that we could never give over the hump. The San Antonio Spurs team with Iceman, we could never get over a hump against him. Obviously, the Lakers with with that team, we could never get over a hump with those guys. So it was fierce fierce competition and we always was always was saying to ourselves like if we just added this piece or add that piece we could probably match those guys in in competition but when i say they had the competition was was so uh jam-packed each team was loaded with with talented players because back then they they had 27 teams as opposed to 32 teams now so it was more talent in the league and all teams were packed with more talent so it was just a matter of, of filling things out and getting the right pieces in place. Yeah, and you also had some yeah, very tough competition in the Western Conference as well. Exactly, exactly. That made it even harder for you. <laughs> made it even harder for us, exactly. And then, and then plus with the travel, you know, with the traveling aspect of it, we did not have private jets like they have now. We had to fly commercial, which means you had to get up this time of day, that time of morning to fly, you know, to, to make all these trips. And that took a toll on your body as well. How did you even find just fitting into the airline seats and things? I mean, did you get upgraded many times to be able to fly with extra leg room or how, how did that sort of work? If we didn't see first class, we always race for the bulkhead seats or, or the owl or the exits row seats. I can imagine. So the tallest guys I usually got those seats. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah usually, usually we, we flew first class most of the time. But yeah, we had to get the bulkhead seats in, in the exit row. In, uh, in mid-February of 1983, the Warriors traded you to Atlanta and then you played two full seasons with the Hawks. This was also Dominic Wilkins' rookie season. Right. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your time with Atlanta and playing alongside the human highlight film as well, Rick? Right. I called it, it was a coming back home thing for me. So it was a, it was a good thing for myself mm-hmm. when I was traded to Atlanta because um, I knew I knew people here. I knew of Dominique. I knew of the great shock blocker they had in Tree Rollins. I knew a great power forward they had in Dan Roundfield. I knew of a great point guard they had in Eddie Johnson. They called him Fast Eddie. I mean, quick as a cat. He was one of those point guards that you see out there today that speeded around the court, so to speak. So it was great playing with Dominique and playing with those guys. And in the next year or so, we got Doc Rivers and, and some more pieces. But, um, you know, playing with Dominique, I told him several times that, Nick, you are the man. Because not only did he dunk on somebody, he did those dunks in the games on somebody. You know, he did dunks like you would see in a dunk contest, but it was in real time in a game. So he always came through in the clutch, and he was such a such a class guy, and we still communicate to this day. Yeah, that's good to hear. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about a particular game that took place in 1985. Uh-huh. It was March the 12th, Atlanta versus Boston at uh, Lakefront Arena in New Orleans. I think you probably know where I'm heading. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. Larry Bird dropped 60 points on your Atlanta Hawks. 60. Wow. Even though Dominique had a, a great game, I think he was in the mid-30s himself. Yeah. But by the end of the game, Atlanta teammates were even high-fiving one another on yeah, the bench. Yes. Uh, do you mind just recalling that game and then particularly any memories you might have of Larry Bird and that incredible performance he put on where he threw up 60 points? Before the end of that game, Coach Fatello had so many players guarding him. He just said, okay, you go guard him. You go guard him. You go guard him. 
and nobody could guard him. Yeah. Everything he threw up went in. Okay. <laughs> Everything. I mean, he was just throwing up shots left and right, man. And they, they just went in. And believe it or not, that's the game. We have this TV channel called Classic NBA Games. Mm-hmm. And that's the game that my son, my daughter, my nieces, my nephews, they have all seen that game where he dropped 60. And they say, oh, that's my dad <laughs> getting 60 drops. Oh, that's my, that's my uncle. Look at him out there trying to gall every bird. So, <laughs> so I'm thankful for that. You know, so my kids can see me uh, playing against Bird in, in the NBA class like that. But, you know, the, the memories of that game was unbelievable. Uh, sometimes guys get in the zone, and he was certainly in the zone that night. That was one of the most phenomenal performances ever. Yes. Do you have many old uh, VHS tapes or any DVDs of some of your games back in the NBA stage of your career or not Not many really? I have a game that I played against Utah when I was in Golden State. I have half of that and I have some some old footage of college, some of my college days. I have a couple of games of that. But, you know, the NBA and in, in, in college is so prevalent now that I could go back and get games. So whenever the time arrives, whenever my son, either one of my sons asks for it or my daughter asks for it, or my, even when I have grandkids one day, <laughs> we can always go back and get it. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you'll be able to get access to some of those and, and relive some of those great moments. Yes. Now, your your final NBA game was in April of 1985. However, your professional career was far from over. In the late 1970s, I read through my research before we chatted, there were some scouting reports that compared you to future Hall of Famer Bob McAdoo. And coincidentally, you guys would play alongside one another in 1988 and you'd win the EuroLeague final. But before we even get to that, do you mind just discussing your decision to leave the NBA and then actually head overseas to play, Rick? Yes. Um, I was contacted by a couple of teams there, but, but even before that, my wife went to Italy. Before I even went there, she was an international fashion model, one of those high fashion models. She went there a year before I before I went there in, in 85. And she was telling me how it is and, and all of this and, and that, you know, she wanted to go back and forth to the States and to Europe. I was the type of guy that I, w- I wanted to see more of the world. I wanted I wanted to be a travel more myself. And so I gave it a shot. You know, I gave it a shot as summer. I remember getting getting prepared to go over there, thinking that I was going to stay a year or so and then come back. But the rules at that time stated that if you go to Europe and come back to the NBA, you can't go back to Europe. So I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do here? So my wife was there. You know, she, she really liked the country. Um, I, I started to like the country when I was there. And so... I just I just decided to stay there, stay in stay in Spain, stay in Italy, and uh, it, was, it wasn't a matter of me not wanting to come back to to the NBA to play. I just thought if I could go back to the NBA, I can't go back to Europe, so I can have a longer career in, in Europe as opposed to the NBA. So that's why I stayed. Oh, okay. Well, that's good insight there into what actually happened behind the scenes. Yeah. How did you find the contrast between playing in the NBA at the highest level in world basketball? then going across to play in Europe. And Italy had, uh, from all reports, a very good league at that stage as well. So what was it like adjusting to playing overseas? It was good because in Europe, you only play once a week, but you practice every day. And in the States, you play three to five games a week. And so it was a lot less wear and tear on your body 
as far as as far as uh, you know playing, getting injured and whatnot. But my first year there, my first year in Italy, I blew out my back. I had some back issues when I was in in the NBA my last year there. And the only thing that helped me was I had to go get treatment for acupuncture. I got acupuncture treatment, and that really helped. But that next year, when I went to Europe, the first year, man, when I tell you I could not bend over and tie my sneaker, I could not touch my knees. But it was, it was that much pain in the lower, lower back. And that was all due to the running up and down the court, all the hits and all of that. And that's that's what I got from the doctors, too, that they was telling me that, any more of this, all of this uh, going up and down the, the hardwood court, you know, you might not be able to, your back might not be able to hold up. So that was really, really frightening for me uh, playing. And I, was, and I was telling myself, maybe I did make the right decision as far as coming to Europe to play less. I had the back injury. I had the knee surgery in the NBA. And I had, I had the eye surgery in college. And I was thinking about the long term. So it was it was like a matter of medical it was a medical decision that I had to make too with that because even though my back got better I couldn't take that chance of it going out because that was that was a really hard decision to make man because it was it was more more than I was thinking about as far as making that decision should I stay should I go back you know the back this problem that problem so it, it was rough you know, so. Some big life decisions, of course, there. Big time life decisions, because uh, at that time, that 86 is when I had my first child. That was my first year in, in Europe. So I was like, man, I got to take care of this baby. <laughs> you know? yeah. I can't take a chance of going back and getting hurt, going up and down, you know, and not, not being able to, to provide for my, for my wife and for my, for my child. So all of that played a big factor into my decisions as well. Plenty of things going on behind the scenes there. So Plenty, plenty. Yeah. Now, I mentioned a little while ago about 1988, I believe, was the year that you won the EuroLeague final and you teamed up with uh-huh. Bob McAdoo. And I believe right. Mike D'Antoni was actually a very popular player over in Italy at this stage too. Uh, do you mind just talking a little bit about playing with some of those former NBA guys and actually winning that 1988 EuroLeague final? Right, because uh, the year before I have I have, I was playing with a team uh, outside of Milan, like an hour outside of Milan, and and um, obviously I had a good year with them with that team, and so Milan offered me a two year deal to come there, and I was playing with royalty. Mike D'Antoni was and is still a legend in that country. He had the dual citizenship. I played with a guy named Roberto Premier. He was like such a big time shooter over there. He's in uh, politics now over there. I played against a guy named Dino Meneghin. He is like an ambassador in, in Italy. So they had, they had these uh, guys who was like bigger than life, so to speak. The Italian guys that I played with the first year, especially those three, they were treated as though they were royalty. Okay, because they was just that, just that bigger name. And then, then to add someone like a McAdoo on the squad, I mean, we, we were like the sky's the limit. So it, it was a great first year experience. I'm not going to pretend I know a whole lot about European basketball, but to add a bit of perspective, after we chat today, I'm also going to be chatting with a, a good friend of mine. His name is Kobe Sabrino. Uh-huh. And he actually attended one of your games it was in 1992 and i'll talk well we might as well chat about the game actually now there was a game in france 
that you won at the buzzer. You hit a shot after you stole the ball to win the game. Um, right. I think it was the European Cup final. It was. It was, yeah. And that's on YouTube. It's one of the most prominent clips I could find of you on YouTube. And yes. Yeah, just an incredible finish to the game. How did that sort of all come to be? My kids uh, have watched that over and over again, as a matter <laughs> of fact. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a big moment there. Yeah. And, you know, that particular game, we were, we were leading the whole game, by the way. It was a championship game. We were leading the whole game. The last five, six minutes, they caught up with us. I remember distinctly, my teammate was on the line, on the free throw line. We were down one. He makes the first free throw, okay? Then I'm saying to myself, man, he got to make the second free throw so we can go up one. It was only seconds left. And so he misses. And I'm thinking it happened so quick. As soon as he missed, I pretend to run down the court and I duck my head because <laughs> the guy... The seven-foot Greek guy got the rebound, and I ducked my head. And I said, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to pause because I knew he was going to make a quick outlet pass. So as soon as I duck, he makes the pass. I go up, grab it, one dribble to the corner. He comes out at me. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best feeling in the world. (laughs) That was the best feeling. But to get the steal, to make the shot over him, because he definitely came out to try to block it. And uh, we win a game in the last last second like that. I always wanted to do that, to win a game with a last second shot. It was a great shot, that's for sure. It was a great shot. I mean, it was a great steal. You know, it was a great moment in time. Uh, the guy still remember that. And so, you know, it's, it's going to live on. Yeah. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes to this episode. Okay. I'll have some of the links about items that we've chatted about today, and that'll be one of them for sure. will be a link to that video. Great. A good one to remember for sure. Yes, it is. I appreciate that. Not a problem at all. Now, one more question I'd like to ask just about your international career, and I have to thank my friend Kobe for this. He informed me that you played alongside the legendary Arvidas Sabonis in... Yes. The Spanish League, I think it's the ACB. Yes. And it was in 1993, and this is before he actually even played in the NBA. Yes. Do you mind just recalling a little bit about that experience, teaming up with the legend Arvidas Sabonis? Arvidas Sabonis. Uh, yeah, he was he was such a big guy. I mean, have you seen the movie Frankenstein? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> when I say Frankenstein, <laughs> not, not any fat on his body, okay? Yeah. The guy was in total shape, okay? But he was always hurt. The legs, yeah. the ankle, the knee, <laughs> the Achilles, something. But he had a body to die for. Seven feet, can shoot the three, can pass like he's a point guard, can rebound with the best of them, you know, and didn't speak no English. <laughs> so, so it was hard to communicate with him at the beginning. But, uh, you know, once you get on the court, it was like, it was like we, we were brothers because, you know, he knew my moves. I knew his moves. I knew when he was going to pass or when he was going to shoot. So he, he was a great player to play with too. It was difficult to communicate with him at the beginning because he, he spoke a little Spanish, but he did not speak any English. Uh, he spoke very, very little English, but, uh, we did get along well together. And like I said, he kept himself in good shape. He just had those nagging injuries, and that's what kept him out of the NBA for a while. But once he got that back together, 
you can tell he had a great year there also. Yeah, and I like that Frankenstein reference. It's quite apt. Yeah, it is. It makes sense. Um, now, how did you go with learning languages while you were living overseas? Do you still uh, speak a little bit other than English as well? Like you mentioned Spanish there. What other languages were you having to uh, delve into as well? I did take classes for Spanish. I did take classes when I was in Italy for, for Italian. And uh, to this day... I speak Spanish more than Italian. I only speak Italian with my wife because we we communicate with each other sometimes in Italian. Okay. Because she doesn't she doesn't know Spanish, and sometimes I get Spanish and Italian mixed up. If you can tell, you can say, "Oh my God, I got I can't say that." <laughs> but uh, you know, I do use the Spanish more because there's more Spanish speaking people here in America. But I speak Italian to my wife a lot. We we always joking around with Italian. We always try to go to these Italian restaurants and say, "Hey, this is not how they make it in Italy. Uh, Come on, <laughs> you got you got to make the food like they do in Italy, because you know? <laughs> there's some of the best food in the world." <laughs> yeah, I could imagine you would have uh, indulged in many a nice meal over in Europe. Yes, for sure, for sure, man. Now, um, Basketball Digest. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Well, you probably are. There used to be a, a monthly magazine over release called Basketball Digest. Uh-huh. They had a regular feature in it called The Game I'll Never Forget. And each issue, they'd actually ask a player, what's the absolute best game they can recall from their career? Do you have a single game from your NBA or European career? And you might have already touched on it with a European final we talked about, but is there one that springs to mind as your absolute favorite you'll never forget? Uh, that one, when I was in uh, the Spanish League, that championship game, one to remember, when we won the, the European League in Italy, phenomenal time there. Uh, a couple of games against the Lakers, uh, at the Forum, a game against the Celtics in the Garden. I heard my name called several times, you know, <laughs> a game against, against the Knicks in the Garden. I heard my name there. You know, those historic places, I mean, I can go back and reminisce on those, especially those three cities in America and, uh, some of those games was very memorable for me. Yeah, it gives me almost goosebumps just hearing about it now. Obviously, I love my NBA history and my basketball history, but yes. to hear it from a former player, it really, yeah, really hits home. Now, um, do you have a favorite arena that you ever played in? Was it an absolute favorite you could choose? Uh, it would have to be the Garden, Boston Garden. Yeah. Before they made the new one, because that court, that parquet court, was so different than the, all the other floors in the states. That parquet floor was so unique. They had dead spots. They had good spots. The nets on the rim was one of a kind. Those are the kind of nets that you didn't see that a lot in, in other NBA arenas. And it was so close to the court, the fans. But it was huge at the same time. So I would say the Boston Garden was definitely uh, the most memorable arena that I, that I definitely enjoyed playing in. Fantastic. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, You've been named an SEC legend, and late last year, 2014, you were inducted into MSU's Sports Hall of Fame. Where do you rate those great achievements in amongst all the things you've done in your career, Rick? Well, when I got into the the SEC legends um, in 2006, that was such a great honor. I remember going to, I think it was it was in Nashville, Tennessee, at the SEC tournament. They invited me to come up to get this, to get this award. And, and that's a part of the legacy that I want to leave for myself, for my kids and my grandkids so they can see that because they can never take that away. And also with, with the Hall of Fame, I mean, when I went down there in October of 2014, I took my son and it was 
great experience for him to see his dad going through that. My sisters came, my wife came, some more relatives came from there. That's the best thing that could happen too, to share that with the people that you love. It's not just about me. It's about leaving a legacy for your family and leaving, leaving a name out there for your kids, for your grandkids and your great grandkids to see. I mean, you can't beat that. That's fantastic. It's uh, good to reflect back on and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today and uh, thanks again for making yourself available. If people wanted to just follow your movements online, I know that you're uh, on Twitter. Is that the best way for people to keep up to date with what you're up to these days? Yes, on Twitter and I'm also on Facebook, Rick Brown. And um, you know, my wife and I have, have a business together you know, she has a blog talk radio show that, that she does. Okay. And, you know, we can keep up there. But uh, mainly on those social media platforms is, is where people can find me. Your Twitter handle is at Rick Brown NBA. At, at Rick Brown NBA. You're right. Exactly. No worries. I'll include links to that in the show notes. And if you wanted to just pass on the details about your wife's blog talk radio show, I'll, I'll put a link to that as well for what it's worth. But okay. thanks again for, for making yourself available. It's been great to be able to have a chance to chat with you. And uh, I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much. And it's been a great talking with you. And uh, look forward to seeing it in print and look forward to continue on and with, the, with this conversation at a, future, at a later date. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to actually invite you back in the future if you'd be willing to chat a bit more about the NBA of you know 1980s and beyond. Well, next time we're going to chat, you're going to be talking about my oldest son. He's playing in <laughs> Turkey now. Okay. But he's trying, trying to get to the NBA. And uh, my youngest son, who is 15 now, and, you know, I'm looking forward to big things from him as well in the future. So look out for the brown boys. Oh, that's great. Well, <laughs> just quickly, your boy that's playing in Turkey then at the moment, uh-huh. obviously he'd probably be playing at a, a good level as well. So is he getting interest to head back to the States to play as well? Or how's that sort of going at the moment? Yeah, he has an uh, invitation to go to, a, to go to a summer league here with the Pelicans in the summer. He won with the Hawks. Uh, not a summer league, but a tryout camp last summer. But his name is getting out there. He is on a D1 team in Istanbul. They're in third place now, and the playoffs is about to start for them. And he's got to be 6'6", okay? He's 6'6", but he plays like he's 6'9", because he's always getting double figures and rebounds. He's a great shot blocker. He's a good scorer. He's an all-around good player. But his main positions right now is a 2 and a 3, but he can play the 4. I just want to throw that in there. You know, That's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the youngest son is 6'5 now at 15. And so he, he has a bright future as well. So like I said, look out for my boys. Excellent. Oh, well, that's great. Well, thanks again, Rick. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, Same here. hopefully we'll catch up again. Great. Take care. When I spoke to Rick, I mentioned that I had minimal knowledge about European basketball. And to add some perspective, I was going to speak to a good friend of mine, Kobe Sabrino, and sure enough, Kobe, here we are. How are you today, mate? I'm good, Adam. Thanks for having me. Oh, no worries at all. It's a pleasure to, to have you on, mate. You had a much closer look at Rick's career, particularly, obviously, when he was in Europe playing, and you attended a few of his games. So I'd love to just hear from you a little bit about your perspective on his career and what he actually achieved whilst in Europe. So can you maybe just talk about what you experienced firsthand, mate? Yeah, no problem. Well, first of all, I'd like to to say that the first time I've heard of him, it was in 1988. He already had been playing in Europe for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but because he was playing in Italy, back then we didn't have internet like we do now. So, you know, all the stats, all the games and all that, we couldn't get 
all that info that we have now. The first time I seen him on telly was uh, the final four of the now called Euroleague. Back then, it was the European uh, Cup, mm-hmm. the European Champions Cup. You might know this already, but he was playing with Tracer Milan. In that team was a, a former NBA MVP, uh, Bob McAdoo. And Dina Menegin was already on that team as well. So when he got to to that team, they were they were really good. They won the European Cup champion twice. I saw him there. Uh, first thing I did, trying to find out where he came from. Obviously, NBA guy. So back then, uh, someone that came from the NBA was already a big deal. It's not like now that everyone comes and goes. Yeah, that was the first time on telly. And then he obviously moved on to the Spanish league. To put it in perspective, Adam, he moved from the European champion, which was Milan, to a Spanish team that was just recently got promoted to the Spanish league. I don't know how that came about. Obviously, I guess money was involved, I guess. But, you know, it's the perspective I, I was telling you the other day. It's like, imagine you playing in the... Chicago Bulls of the 72 victories with Jordan and then the next year he moved on to the Washington Wizards with Jordan when he was 40. So it's a bit, <laughs> a bit like that to, to be honest. <laughs> the things I remember about him, he was um, a very professional guy because obviously some of the Americans that will come uh, during that time, some of them will just come for the money. There was no love for basketball. They will change teams every every season and there will be you know, not settling down anywhere. But with Ricky Brown, what I found, it was a very professional, very down to earth for, obviously I never met him, but for what I could see. And in terms of basketball, he was a double-double machine. He was unstoppable at times. A very high percentage on field goals. He knew what he needed to do. He had great footwork, very long arms, you know. So I think the first time... We saw him, so say mid-80s to then to the mid-90s before he retired. The transition from his offensive game to the defensive game was massive because at the beginning, yes, he could defend, but not that well. But say mid-90s when he retired, you knew that he could defend anyone and, and he had that transition in his, in his game as well. That's what I will, I will say about him. We mentioned before, Adam, I saw him uh, on the European Cup. Right now, that cup doesn't exist anymore. But back then, the winners of the domestic cups on each country in Europe, they will play this winner's cup, if you call it like that. Ricky Brown, in 1992, had one of the best games in a, in a final. And I'm sure that you've seen the, the footage already. Being in that game... And I tell you, I've seen other games, and obviously this is a final, but the emotions within the last 30 seconds of the game, that was wild. That was that was amazing what, what he did just, just there. And I'm sure that, you know, if, if you talk to him, uh, he will explain a, a bit more and what went through his head. One of these unbelievable finishes, um, obviously you can't compare it to Jordan, that six-game winner with Utah, but in terms of European basketball, in terms of Real Madrid, and me being a fan of Real Madrid, what Ricky Brown did on that last seconds of the game, it was it was amazing. That's awesome, mate. 
you were actually there in person, and I believe you were there with your brother, and you said that you can still remember to this day the roar from your brother and amongst all the crowd as well. So <laughs> very good memories. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, like when you see certain games and you're, you're always stick in the back of your mind. Being there, obviously, I had to watch the game a couple of times afterwards to kind of get the full picture. Yeah. But I, I remember, and now I'm speaking from memory, but I think with 30 seconds to go, Real Madrid was three points up and they had possession. They missed it. Then one of the, I think it was Prelevich from Pauk Salonica, he scored a three-pointer from probably nine meters with no effort whatsoever to tie the game. And this was like six or seven seconds to go. They committed a foul. And back in the day, there was no two free throws like it is now. There was that one plus one. Mm -hmm. So if you miss the first free throw, then off you go. And uh, the American guy, Mark Simpson, he was a reliable shooter, but he missed that, that one with, I think, probably five, six seconds to go. The park center grabbed the defensive rebound. He was going to pass it to his teammate. And out of nowhere, out of nowhere, Ricky Brown was just standing there and came up with a steal, shot the ball. And as the passer went, the ball went in. For a minute, I mean, the, the whole arena went quiet because there were more... Greek supporters there, to be honest. <laughs> and they all went quiet because no one could actually believe that that happened. And, <laughs> and then all you can see was Ricky Brown just, just running from one end to the other of the court. And then even his teammates for a second, you could see him and think, did that went in? Did they, we just win? You know, what, what happened? <laughs> but yeah, it was being there and all that and, and the shout and, and you think, oh God, we've seen this. So we're done now. <laughs> <laughs> It was brilliant. Yeah, I love it, mate. That's great. So thanks for recounting being a part of that as well. I did mention to Rick at the time that we'd have a chat after we had spoken and then I'd include it towards the end of the episode, which is this part right now. So just before we do wrap it up, mate, I know that you have your own podcast that you've done episodes of in both English and other languages as well. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about that? And I can include some links in the show notes to some of your previous episodes because you've also got a keen interest in basketball history in general too mate yeah that's that's correct i like i like that part of the basketball and i like going into research and trying to find out different stories for former players because sometimes you've seen these players when you were growing up obviously then you you don't know anything about them anymore i like to um, investigate a bit more uh, on that on that sense even though there's a, a bit abandoned at the moment yeah, I do have the the blog and the and the podcast. There's Forgotten Legends. I've got a few episodes in English because I I uh, chat with some of the American players that, that play in the Spanish league. Probably none of them play NBA. I don't think I like that. And I have to say that I remember listening to your first podcast. This is probably two years ago or something like that. And that was what made me made me go into a podcast myself because I could see what you were doing. There was a really good job and, well, you enjoy it. I mean, you, you can see that sometimes in the conversations with the players, you really enjoy it and I, I kind of wanted that as well. So, in a way, I have to say thank you, Adam, for getting me into all this. Oh, mate, that's not a problem at all. I didn't actually say that so that you'd mentioned that. Just to clarify, I didn't pay you, did I? 
No, you didn't pay me oh, just good. yet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming. It'll be a PayPal donation later tonight. <laughs> but no, all jokes aside, thanks again, mate, for being a part of this show and thanks for your support as well of, of this podcast. And I'll include links to what you've done on your website in the show notes to this episode, which are at com slash 56, the number 56. So until we chat again, mate, and I'd actually like to get you on the podcast in a future episode of the show. Actually, we might just talk about NBA in general and a particular topic going forward, if that interests you. Yeah, that would be brilliant. I mean, obviously, we know the time difference there might be a problem for us, but I'm sure we can work something out. Yeah, we'll work something out. That'll be brilliant, Adam. I'll chat with you in the future. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. Suggest topics or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. You can leave a voicemail. You really can. <laughs> Please leave a voicemail, somebody. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll stop saying this. Simply visit com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave a message and then press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done. Time now to share some more great feedback from fans of the show. Here are the two most recent reviews. Thanks to Ramalama from the USA. I've probably butchered that username. The review is titled Goosebumps. Ram writes, and I'm pretty sure that's actually not his real name, unbelievable podcast describing the GOAT's career. Now, when he refers to GOAT, I assume it's Michael Jeffrey Jordan. I'm blessed to live through it again. Well, thank you, Ram. That's high praise, literally. Next review is from Select720, and I know that's definitely not his real name. His real name is Richard. He lives in Melbourne in Australia. The review is titled Fantastic Podcast. Richard writes, like Adam, my twin brother and I used to obsess over the NBA in the late 80s and 90s and feasted on the sadly small tidbits of action available to Aussie audiences at the time. I can understand that completely, Richard. I still have my Always Showtime and Larry Legend VHS tapes along with the Six Bulls Championship tapes. Pity I don't own a VHS. (laughs) Anyway, these podcasts are an absolute treat for us NBA tragics in their early 40s. Not just talking about Jordan and other Hall of Famers, but role players we used to watch that gave the era so much personality. Guests warm quickly to Adam's relaxed interview style and well-researched questions, thank you, enabling them to divulge material that is not widely known. Keep up the great work, Adam. Cheers, Richard. Well, thanks, Richard. That's an absolute gem of a review. And also thanks to Ram. Worldwide, the show currently has 51 reviews, which is very good, 48 on iTunes and 3 on Stitcher. So close to that 50th review on iTunes. That would be awesome if you can help me get above 50. Thanks for your continued support. If you do add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways that you can support the podcast. If you enjoy the show and you're listening to this point in the show, you must enjoy it or you're a sucker for punishment, one or the other. Please do tell your basketball loving friends about it. Your word of mouth recommendations are certainly worth their weight in gold. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. On iTunes, visit inallairness.com slash review. That will open up on iTunes. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com slash Stitcher. And you can also subscribe on Player FM, TuneIn Radio, Pocket Casts, and other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com 
Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAnnis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAnnis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.